So before we jump into Philippians 2, 12 through 18, I want to take a quick look back at several of the verses before um, 2, 12 through 18 to kind of give us some context of where Paul is taking us uh, in this section. So I'll look back all the way back to work, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through 2.11 and highlight a couple of things. Um, in 27, Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So this basically means the way in which they were to live their lives at all times and all places must be worthy of the gospel. Then he warns them in that passage that they're going to have opponents when they're trying to live this life and that they will suffer as children for the sake of the gospel. Then he encourages them to engage in gospel conflict and gospel proclamation. And then he says these words, So if... And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, or Patrick did when he taught this section. He says, So if you have any encouragement in Christ, and they obviously do, if you have any comfort from love, and they do, if you have any participation in the Spirit, and as believers we know they do, if you have any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy. But how can they do that, you might ask? And he tells them, by being of the same mind, by having the same love, and by being in full accord and of one mind, he says. He says to look out not only for the interests of themselves, but for the interests of others. But how? And how? He tells us. He says through humility, through service, through sacrifice, even to the point of death. And you might say, boy, that seems extreme. Humility, service, and sacrifice even to the point of death. How could anyone do that? If we only had an example of someone doing that so we could understand our need to do it. And Paul gives that to us. Philippians 2, 5-8, through it says, "...having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You've You've heard me say it several times here in Sunday school, that the Christian life is a slow, painful death to self. A believer who is growing in holiness must also be dying to self. This process is called sanctification. It's this upward spiral that Patrick was just telling us about in the sermon. This continuous upward spiral of the conquest of our flesh. This morning in our text, we're going to be spending our time discussing a few of these aspects of sanctification and thinking about these questions and trying to answer them with the text. Why should I pursue sanctification? What's the believer's role in sanctification? What's God's role in sanctification? How does it affect me personally? And then how does my sanctification or lack thereof affect others around me, including believers and the lost. So let's look at our text this morning and see if we can answer some of these questions and hopefully strengthen our desire to die to self and grow in holiness, to enter into this continuous upward spiral. Somebody read Philippians 2, 12 through 13 for me. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
so now, not only is in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own, for his good pleasure. One of my professors at the seminary, and I'm sure most of you know this, constantly told us when you see that word therefore, you ask what it's there for. Why is that word there? And we always have to look back. So we look back at the previous text and we see that Paul is telling them to believe and do what he's about to say here on the basis of what he said before. On the basis of Christ's supreme example of what we said of His supreme example of humility, of service, of sacrifice, and ultimately His exaltation as the Son of God, who rose from the dead and defeated sin and death. On that basis, therefore, do what I'm about to say. So we could read it, Because of Christ's supreme example, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Christ's example gives us the question, the answer to the question, why? Why should I pursue it? Why should I pursue holiness? Because of what He's done, in particular, what He's done for me. So now we have the why. So now Paul writes these words. He says, as you have always obeyed. So what's he talking about there? As you've always obeyed. Think back. Think about this church. Think about where's Paul? Paul used to be with them. He planted the church there in Philippi. He's their spiritual leader. He's their spiritual father to many of them. When he taught God's word to them, they obeyed. When he exhorted them, they listened. They trusted Paul. They obeyed Paul. He says, as you have always obeyed. But then Paul gives a distinction here, and he gives a command about the circumstances that they now find themselves in because he's in prison. So they obeyed while he was with them, and now he tells them to obey God when he's not with them. They were to obey God and his word whether Paul was with them or not. And their basic motivation for this obedience to God and to his word, and our basic motivation and our obedience to God and his word, is not whether or not we're in the presence of our spiritual leaders. Paul was telling them that their foundational motivation for obedience to God and His Word was God's presence, was His work, was His humility, was His sacrifice, was His holiness, was His exaltation that He just got through explaining to them in 1-11. through So Paul, their spiritual father, his spirit, their spiritual leader, was not to be the foundational motivation to obey God and His Word. So because, in Philippians 2, 12-13, so because of Christ's supreme example, we said that therefore, because of God's presence, because of God's humility, sacrifice, and exaltation, he says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. So this helps us understand two of these other questions up here. What is the believer's role in sanctification? What is God's role in sanctification? 
The text says, work out your own salvation. And then it says, for it is God who works in you. So we both have a role. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? It has something to do with the Ten Commandments, for one thing, being obedient to, to God's instruction to us. As we see not only in the Ten Commandments, but throughout uh, the teachings of Christ and the Gospels. So yes. working out then would be doing that which is obedient through faith. It's yes. important that faith would be there without faith. Uh, it would be works of man rather than works of the Holy Spirit. Yes. It's not work for your own salvation, it's work out. Yeah. No, no, I was agreeing with you. <clears throat> yeah. Perhaps if we add a word in here, it'll help us understand it a little better. Work out of your own salvation. <clears throat> so, work out of the salvation that was given to us, the salvation worked out in us by God. We're working out of what He's given us. It's like a pool we have to draw from to then do good works out of. So what kind of work? Work out your own salvation. What are we talking about? What kind of work? Well, Paul gave us several. Exercising humility, service, sacrifice, obeying God's Word. He calls them to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be of one accord. (laughs) Paul just spent a considerable amount of time in the first two chapters of Philippians explaining to them how they should love one another. By being of the same mind, by looking out for the interests of others, not only their own. And I think it's important for us to remember that the church is a body of believers. Many individuals making up a whole. What one does or doesn't do, whatever sin this person commits, or whatever acts of righteousness someone else commits, affects the body, either positively or negatively. Patrick or Woody, how much oil would it take to contaminate the entire water supply on a submarine? I have no idea. Not much. What is it, Brandon? Like a drop. Yeah, very little. How much does one person's negativity affect those around them? On the flip side, how much does a cheerful disposition or compliment brighten a room full of people? What we say or do, how we act, affects the whole body. So are there any comments or questions so far on verse 12 and 13? Dealing with the same individualism and autonomy that we've been talking about a number of times here in Sunday school. Our American, Patrick talks about this in the sermon, our Americanism is is built up in this individualism. There are certain elements of that, certainly with respect to government, that are legitimate, but our worldview, our lifestyle is very atomized 
and so we don't tend to think in this fashion that what I do actually really matters and affects the other people around me in a profound way. That's something I think we can do with more in <coughs> <time. Like, coughs> we're not we're not lacking in need of Yes. Absolutely. I think that the, the fear that he's talking about here, and we've heard so many arguments about what that means, but the, it's, it's, a, it's a godly respect and constantly awareness of the, the possibility I may uh, do something that is wrong, and I don't want in any way to affect my relationship with my Lord. Uh, by my my sinful behavior. Yes. Yeah, the, the fear and trembling here is not to be afraid or to panic or to, sh- to shake with fear to envision God up there with a lightning bolt ready to throw it down on us. Uh, to be afraid even that I might lose my salvation. Um, but that it's, it's a reverence, it's emotion, it's awe, it's seriousness, it's intentionality. Yes. <laughs> I guess in regards to losing my salvation, no, but yes. Having a fear that God is on His throne and I can't do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. that are fearful like you know we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were actually saved for good works this idea that there's an intentional stack of things there's a list that we are to do and those things tend to be in the category of stuff that may make us tremble uh, as well as the the trembling you know of, of a holy God I mean when when, uh, when Samson's father said, oh, well, we've seen God, so what did he think was going to happen next? Yeah, so, hey, Mike, what's going to happen next is we're going to die because we just saw God. So, I mean, it's this, this kind of thing is certainly appropriate, I think, as well. For instance, raising children, that's very dangerous. If you have that responsibility...
Alright, so verse 12, for work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this is the answer to that question, what is God's role in sanctification? God in His infinite wisdom and righteous plan from the beginning uses human effort to achieve His sanctifying purpose in His people. Chapter 1, verse 6, we see that the Holy Spirit has begun the internal transformation of the believer. It says, chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. But the believer, like I said, working out of your salvation, because of the work of the Spirit, because of the work already done, in God's design, now we can make every effort to die to sin and to grow in holiness before God. By God's design, this human effort, it says, will bear fruit. Though not only by our will will it bear fruit, but by God's will, it says, to work in us for His good pleasure. So therefore, I would say that God is glorified by our human effort, by our sanctification, which is only possible by the indwelling Holy Spirit and His power working in us. God is literally glorified by our struggle to die to ourselves, which brings about our sanctification. Any other comments or questions thus far? But sometimes when we talk in those categories, we can get a little tripped up. It may be helpful, as you often note, that we're not robots. So even in salvation, God doesn't believe on our behalf. He brings us to life so that we may believe and we naturally respond. But it is still us doing the the believing. There's a similar kind of a function here. God works in us naturally. Yes. I think the beautiful thing is we have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is living in us. And He's going to help us to make the proper choices to obey Him. And so I think there's so much leaning we can do on the Holy Spirit that way. And trust the Lord. You you are sanctifying me. You are leading me to what is good. You're going to cry out to Him. Like, I have a choice right now. I'm going to choose to Yes. No, yeah. We often over don't think about or overlook the idea of God in us and what that really means. I think that in another way this is so important because when we look to Christ as our example, we're inclined to think that of his own person and his humanity he obeyed. But the reality is is you know, just like Michelle saying, he was dependent in his humanity on the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So in that way, 
He is also our example. You know, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the same as Jesus was when he grew in favor and stature with God. All right, well, let's look at these last set of verses. And uh, so if somebody would read 14 through 18, chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says we're to do all things, including all the tasks that he's currently just laid out so neatly in the preceding verses for us, but to include all things without grumbling and complaining regardless of our circumstance. But I think specifically in the context of this section of verses, the reason for not grumbling and complaining is not primarily what we've been talking about. It's not primarily about our sanctification and our growth and righteousness. The lack of grumbling and complaining is that so we can, as it says, shine as lights of righteousness in a crooked and twisted generation. So as the world sees us, as they observe us, they should see that we're children of God without blemish, holding fast to God and His word of life. As I was studying these last few weeks for this lesson, I kind of had one of those light bulb moments when I was thinking about all of Scripture and how um, it all ties together. And I was thinking about the Old Testament. And so I would ask you, I want you to think... Is there a story from the Old Testament that you can think of that exemplifies this text? Dare I say almost perfectly. And I I think there's more than one, but I had one particular in mind. Let me paint you a picture. A group of godly young men without blemish, good in appearance. I can relate to that. who were unwillingly found themselves amongst a crooked and twisted king and people, and who were subjected to all kinds of ungodly things, rituals, teachings, which would have provided many opportunities for grumbling and complaining, who were commanded to eat and drink things that they knew according to God's word they were not allowed to do, who instead of disputing with the leader over them about how their God wouldn't allow them to do this, just politely asked not to do it, and then gave a logical way to see if it would actually be better for them and the rest of the men not to do this. Men who, because they held fast to God's word, were shown to be right in the eyes of those leaders. Men who, at the end of their training and testing, were found to be shining as lights in the world they found themselves in. Learned men above all others, it says, not only about the culture and pagan religion they found themselves around, but in godly wisdom and knowledge also. Men who had eventually exercised their faith to the extent that they were willing to be martyred 
instead of defying God, entered their certain death, and were protected by God's power against all logic to the king over them. Men who, because of their strong faith and willingness to hold fast to God's word, affected the entire kingdom around them for the good of the kingdom and for God's glory. In this story, like our text we have before us today, it inspires us to live our lives to such an extent that we offer ourselves, our wants, our desires, as Paul writes, as a drink offering poured out upon the sacrificial offering of our faith in Christ. A story that causes us to be glad and rejoice, he says, in the God-honoring lives of all the people that God has redeemed in the past and how he has used their life circumstances and faith to inspire us today. Who are these men? Daniel and the children in the lion's den. Yeah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded uh, Aspenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of his royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food, and the king ate that the king ate and of the wine he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuchs uh, gave them names, as we know. In verse 8 it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine he drank. Daniel resolved. And we all know the story. We all know what happens. God has begun a good work in us. And He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, But until then, we must work out our own salvation. We must do these things He's called us to do. We must engage in works of sanctification. We must engage in works of righteousness. We must be students of God's Word. We must hold fast to it through the storms of life. As we've mentioned many times, we must be quick to repent. As the text says, we must be not grumble, we must not complain. We must be willing to exercise our faith to the extent that it is obvious to the world that we belong to Christ. We must be willing to stand on the biblical truths in this book to the point of death. We must be willing to pour out our lives, as Paul says, our wants, our desires, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of our faith in Christ. And in doing all of these things and living this way, we should, as verse 18 ends, be glad and rejoice in these things. Any other comments, questions, discussions?